Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding our last programme, discussing the GP services across the country and how different provisions are putting it under increased pressure with an uncertain future. But today's the start of a new venture for News Talk and indeed for Between the Lines. We will be broadcasting every Saturday evening now from 8pm and also podcast first every Friday. Today is International Women's Day and to market we're discussing femicide and how to deal with instances of domestic abuse. Our panel this morning services manager with Women's Aid Gillian Dennehy, Katie Dawson, a barrister who's specialising in the family courts and childcare law and also services development manager at Safe Ireland, Lisa Marmion. My thanks to you all for joining us this morning. Um, I'm just going to start maybe um, maybe with yourself actually Gillian first of all today just in kind of general terms to give us a sense of what's happening in Ireland. We, we talk about um, the numbers the increases in the number of femicide cases and and domestic abuse and domestic violence but just kind of set the scene Mm -hmm. in terms of your own women's aid research Mm -hmm. what are your stats yeah so women's aid um, began the femicide watch back in 1996 um, and the real push for that back in 1996 was that 19 women died um, in in that year and so far that's been actually the highest number of women who've who've died since we've started it since we've been monitoring it 19 women um, and what we found over 20 years of looking at um, femicide in Ireland and femicide, just to explain what femicide is to your listeners, it is, um, it's defined as the killing um, of women and girls um, by men. Um, and what we found is that there's been an average in Ireland, there's been an average of 10 women killed per year. So averaging out all the, the killings, it's been a 10 women per year. And that's not necessarily um, by a partner or, or husband or family no, member. That's just in, in That's in all general. women. Well, that's all women killed by men. Okay. However, when you look at the women who've been killed, mm-hmm. uh, one in two of these victims have been killed by a current or ex-partner. Okay? And also the majority of women have also been killed by someone known to them. Okay? But w- what our real concern is that these women are killed, majority of women are killed by someone known to them, um, the majority are killed in their own home, um, and majority are killed by a current or ex-partner. Um, so that's the real, real concern um, that we have. And we just, you know, it's kind of to dispel the stranger danger. It's actually where women are most at danger is in their own home by someone known to them. OK, we'll come to the kind of the the, the psychology of all of that and the, perhaps yeah. the reasons behind it and how mm. we can avoid it over the course of the programme today. Mm. But that's, I suppose, very specifically, Gillian, talking mm. about uh, femicide. Just yeah. in terms of domestic abuse or yeah. domestic instances, mm. just tell us yeah. about some of your, your figures um, in those cases. Yeah, so unfortunately, in Ireland and um, I'm sure uh, Lisa will, will support me in that, that, that there's a real lack of data there's a real Absolutely. lack of research a real lack of commitment um, to, to research into violence against women and girls so as I say we're doing the femicide watch but we're literally just you know pulling together um, from media watches from sentencing everything about you know uh, you know the women that are being killed there's not enough data about domestic abuse and the state agencies you know, there's a real concern about that as well about you know their lack of collation of data and I know there's a real conversation out there about improving that but that needs to happen um, but what we did, um, we did a um, survey, um, and that was now many, many years ago, um, and we found that one in five women um, experienced uh, domestic abuse, and that was like all forms of domestic mm. abuse. So that was one in five. Um, there is a EU um, a research that was done. It's kind of by the European Union Fundamental Rights Agency, and that was back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and that found that uh, one in three w- um, women would, ex- would experience um, experience psychological abuse. But there's then, you know, there needs to be consistent mm. research done, um, you know, by, you know, Irish government state agencies about the um, instance of domestic abuse. And just to say as well, there is concern about how domestic abuse is measured um, because it's not just incidents, you know, it's not isolated incidents. It is a pattern of behaviour. So how do you know, it it is important to get that right when you're measuring domestic abuse. It's not just, okay, the incident that was reported to the Gardaí, but, you know, women are experiencing um, its ongoing abuse. And a lot of incidents uh, won't be reported to the Gardaí. And and as I said, Mm -hmm. it's not just incidents, it's it's ongoing abuse, you know, that they're Experience. We're going to come back to some of those yeah. points in a few moments. Just uh, Lisa Marmion, just from a Services Development Manager with Safe Ireland, just remind people of what it is, Safe Ireland, what it is that you do. Um, Safe Ireland is the National Social Change Agency working towards the eradication of, of violence against women and children. Um, so in, in that, um, it's really about voice and visibility uh, for us of the issue by um, 
building capacity, raising awareness, research, as well as frontline work and working and with our membership of 36 services across the country. Okay, so some of the issues there are some of the the key points that Gillian outlined for us just at the start of the programme. Lisa, can I just get you to maybe give us your own insight into that? I suppose more specifically, just the most recent point Gillian talked about, the lack of available data that's there with regards to domestic incidents and and cases of domestic abuse. Is that something that you guys encounter? Oh, absolutely. And that that would be very clear from our membership as well. Mm. Um, What gets measured Um, really gets actioned. So it's crucial that we have uh, an accurate picture of the experience for women and children in their in their daily lives. Mm. Without that, it's really difficult to plan. Mm. So, you know, we would urge that um, proper data is made available. In terms of trying to gather the, the the stats and the figures, really about domestic abuse, absolutely, okay, it's crucial. Can I can I bring you in, Katie Dawson? Because I know you're coming from from at this from obviously the the legal background, but it it must be very hard to have the stats and the figures in some of these cases when you don't have a record if if the cases aren't reported. Yeah, absolutely, and most of these cases are. Sorry, all of these cases under domestic violence are in camera, which means they're dealt with in private. So only the mm. the applicant, the respondent is in court. So um, it's very, very difficult to get a sense and to get a picture now. I think if you're dealing with a lot of cases, you can get a sense and a picture over time as to as to what's happening. I think, I suppose, and I say this maybe more in a personal level mm. than as a lawyer, but I, I think one of the problems I have is I think even the term domestic violence is problematic because domestic seems to be suggesting that it's a lower level of violence. It's less serious. It's less serious than an assault that happens out on the street. Um, If something happens within somebody's own home, it's, it's less serious. It's just a domestic. We don't need to be concerned about it. And in fact, it's actually far more serious than a random assault that might happen on the street. And it needs to be taken far more seriously because... And the impact that it has on women, the impact that it has on children, the impact that it Mm. has on society. And because we don't take domestic violence seriously enough, Mm. we're not making the link between domestic violence and femicide situations where women are, 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 are being killed. And every time I hear of a woman being killed, murdered in, in violent circumstances, I just get this dread because I know what I'm going to hear next is it was somebody known to them. It was a partner. It was somebody that they mm, knew. Okay. So I think that, that we need to have, it's, and it's not maybe necessarily a legal point, but we need to have a conversation about how as a society we need to take domestic violence far, far more seriously okay. than we're doing. Even the, uh, without getting in, I suppose, to the, the nitty gritty of it too much, but I know that's that's your area, obviously, from a legal background, Katie, but even violence, there's the implication that it's constantly a physical assault or an attack or a, a hit yeah. or a punch, as opposed to yeah. all of the other aspects that yes, come along and, with and abuse. I think, and I think the new, the 2018 Act has a lot of very good measures in it. And one of them is to do with coercive control. I suppose the difficulty with that is how you prove that in court. Um, and that can be a real difficulty mm. for practitioners because what I will often have is I will have somebody that will come into me and there will have been a particular flashpoint, a particular incident that's happened that's led to them saying, I can't deal with this anymore. I have to come to court. I have to get protection. But in fact, there will be a history Okay. Of serious, you know, coercion and control over a long period of time before they've okay. got to that flashpoint. That's a, that's an area I want to talk about today as well. That new offence of coercive control, and and I know, obviously because you've, you've just mentioned it, Katie, we, we might talk about that for a few moments. But I suppose before people come mm-hmm. to you as the legal practitioner looking to have somebody charged under the the offence of co- coercive control, I assume Lisa before that they probably come to the likes of yourselves or to Gillian and Women's Aid, um, perhaps seeking support or or intervention. Would that be the case? It is in some instances, Andrea. Um, we do know that between 8 and 12% of those experiencing abuse come to services. But that's um, a whole other community of women and children that are unidentified. Um, and so that's why it's really important 
that we create awareness within communities, um, within our own spheres of influence, within the professions, to be able to recognise and respond appropriately to coercive control so that everybody that comes in contact with women and children are able to give them the support that they need. Um, you know, essentially, Andrea, when we know better, we do better. Mm. You know, we respond better what, when we understand coercive control. Just w- when you talk about it, just w- what exactly is it? Just explain what it um, is. Well, I think the best way to describe coercive control is that um, it can be physical violence, but not always. Um, interwoven in three equally um horrendous experiences of isolation and control um and um so and, it, it takes in all those what might have been grey areas is that would that be a kind of a, a oh absolutely that weren't previously legislated for okay um so although it, with our past legislation there were areas of experience that uh, people could be prosecuted the you know significant experiences like control and psychological abuse Mm. You know, there there wasn't an adequate response for those. Okay. And that's why the, the offence of coercive control is so welcome. Just uh, let me bring you in on this as well, Gillian Dennehy mm. from, from Women's Aid, just to give us your experience, I suppose, mm. of coercive control. Mm. Obviously, mm. there was an element of lobbying to have mm. it brought in as an offence, and we'll mm. come to that in a moment. But just give us your, your experience from the people you're dealing with. Mm. Yeah, so coercive control, is ba- it's basically the strategies, the tactics, the behaviours an abuser uses Okay, and and with the intention to have power and control over somebody, and that person is usually their partner, the current or um or current partner, um and what the impact of it is is the key thing. Okay, so what is the impact of the different behaviors and strategies and tactics they use is that it often leads women to feel entra- um, trapped. Okay, that they have no way out. So the different tactics they use right depends on the person that they're abusing. Right. So if, for example, um, there's an abuser, um, Lisa has a partner who's an abuser, I have a partner who's an abuser, they're going to use different tactics and behaviours mm-hmm. depending because they personalise, they personalise the abuse. So, for example, Lisa might have disclosed something, um, you know, when you're, you're in love with somebody, you disclose something um, private to them, but they'll use that against them. Okay, so for example, Lisa might have disclosed historical sexual abuse and how she felt vulnerable and things like that. And they'll use that against them in the future. Okay, so they'll go, if you, you know, if you tell anybody what's going on here, you know, you know, you're dirty, you're this, you're that, you know, I'll tell everyone what, you know, what, what your dad did to you, things like that. And for example, for me, let's say I was um, on, um, I was an immigrant to this country. I was on an unstable immigration status. Perhaps my immigration status is dependent on my husband, who's the abuser. He'll use that against me. Nobody's going to believe you. And remember, you're in this country because of me. And so it's different kind of tactics they use. As Lisa said, there is, you know, coercion. There's a coercion part of that. So there's the intimidation. Like often women tell us about, you know, telephones being thrown at them, doors being slammed, you know, remote controls is a favourite one as well. But actually phones is, is often the key one. Mm. Now, they might be thrown at them. They might hit him. They might make contact. But they could, but they're often thrown at them, tables upturned. So it's that intimidation, that's mm. fear. And often physical abuse might not be, have to be mm. used. It could be because the, the, the it's control the fear. element. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's the coercion, right? So that coercion element um, leads someone being able to control someone because you have that fear. Someone's living in constant fear of that coercion, of what else could happen. He's threatened that. Or I can see by his eyes. I can see the murder mm. in his eyes. What could happen if I don't comply with him? If I don't do what he's saying to do? I need to try and keep the peace. I've got two small children. I need to protect them I need to do all I can remember survivor we, we use the term survivors in the domestic abuse sector because the women are constantly surviving they're constantly constantly strategizing for their safety what do I need to do to keep the peace and what they'll realize is that no matter what they do he's never happy because he keeps changing the rules you know so she you know she makes sure that she's home on time she stops talking to her um, friends and family mm-hmm. when he's around because he gets yeah, gets annoyed. So she's like, right, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ring my mother anymore. Or I'm, I'm not gonna go over to to the or hang out with that group of friends or yeah, because you know, oh, I know, you know, for example, um, Katie, she she doesn't like, you know, I know he doesn't like Katie because Katie can see, you know, what's going on, you know, and Katie can, you know, kind of, mm. so he knows that. So she stops hanging around with Katie and she makes excuses to Katie. So she becomes more isolated. You know, for example, as well, a big thing, and I just, you know, it's this entrapment that I really want people to try and understand. And a big thing about that is the financial abuse. Okay, because that's part of the, you know, the controlling element as well. And that is crucial. I don't think it's talked enough about. And that leads women really, really trapped. So, for example, there's different different forms of financial and economic abuse that could be used. So it could be preventing someone from actually accessing the workforce. 
And that could be by actually, you know, physically harming them. Or it could be that somebody's going to work. So, for example, Lisa, I'm sorry, I'm using you, Lisa. <laughs> um, Lisa's going into work and she's getting phone calls. He keeps ringing her. He keeps texting her. And so her boss is like, look, do you know, um, you know, you can't keep mm. doing that. What are you doing? Um, or he asked for photos, you know, send me a photo where you are. So it's interfering with her work. Um, or he's calling up the work, harassing her employees. And, you know, so it's making things really, she's getting really embarrassed. She doesn't want to say what's going on. So she decides maybe I need to leave. Or she's taking too many sick days, you know, as well. And so worker kind of like, what's going on? You're taking loads of sick days, you know? And that's because the impact, okay. as Katie said, the impact of the domestic abuse. And also, I suppose, sorry, other financial abuse that could happen is, you know, running up debts. So it could be that he gets out a loan in her name. He, he you know, takes her credit card. Joint so account that's exactly questioned. Exactly, taking out the money from the joint account. And why does someone, you know, why does somebody comply with that? Because it's the fear. It's the or else. Okay. What's he going to do? Well, let me bring you yeah. back in, Katie Dawson, from, from a, um, just from the, the legal background again. Is it, when it comes to, to court, now that we have a clearly defined um, of, uh, offensive coercive control, and it, and it is quite recent, you might just give us some background to that. In terms of bringing this, these kind of cases before the courts, will it be as clearly defined as, as Gillian uh, has mentioned? Like, will, will you be, like, will they, you be able to, I suppose, argue cases based on, here's the evidence, Here's the dates, the times, the incidents that happened. Will that be possible? I, I think, I suppose, I would hope so, because it obviously is a very important part of what happens in domestic violence relationships. It's obviously primarily about control and actually the physical violence can be like, you know, a secondary factor. Mm. Um, there are really good measures and under section 5 of the 2018 act that set out things that you can consider in terms of dealing with a, there are two main orders that you can get the first is a safety order which is an order that somebody wouldn't use or threaten to use violence molest or put you in fear and if you're not living with your your partner if you've just been in an intimate relationship with them it can also include um, you know, watching or besetting your house. The more serious order then is a barring order which allows somebody to be physically barred from living in their own house. So that's a very, very significant order and you're not going to get that without there being significant evidence. So there is really useful um, criteria set out about the things that ought to be considered and a lot of those factors are factors that would go to coercive control. Um, One thing that I think is quite significant Mm. about the 2018 Act is that in fact violence against animals is considered to be a factor a court ought to consider. And I think that's actually quite significant because... Um, as, sorry, as part of the coercive control as part uh, of, legislation? As part, as, part of, as part of a consideration of any order under the 2018 Act to include coercive control, to include your standard safety order application or your, your barring order application. So there is a criteria set out in Section 5 mm. of, of things that ought to be considered by the court. And one of the things that they can consider is violence against animals. And I think it's quite significant because actually we see um, that there can be quite a correlation between um, people who have been violent against animals who then perpetrate violence against women and violence against children. So I, I think it's useful now. It's not, it's just things that the court can consider. Yeah, okay. It You're building a case, case, effectively. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Here's all exactly. the evidence, here's all the things that But I think that we need to be honest and say, in terms of coercive control, I've been speaking to several practitioners, there is a real worry about how you get that over the line in a court. That's what I wanted to ask. Yeah. In, in, in the legal world, how many, have we had many cases that have been tested I, yet? I haven't heard of a case where a coercive control order has been made. Okay, just you're, you're in, in agreement there too, Gillian. Yeah, the, the, you know, it needs to be tested in the court. I actually was in the UK when um, into, um, it was brought into as an offence in the UK in 2015 and it's very similar legislation. Um, and it took quite a bit of time for that to be tested in the courts in the UK and often it's it's brought in as an offence. Um, so, for example, someone's, uh, an abuser is charged with um, an assault and coercive control is brought along with that offence. You know, and that's the way it happened in the UK. Um, I know that the Gardaí are very committed to trying to really make sure this offence has mm. teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important for um, any women listening out there, if they are experiencing, um, you know, control and um, they're living in fear um, and, you know, have serious alarm distress caused by the, their um, their partner, you know, that advice would be um, to actually start journaling that, 
you know, start writing it down, start keeping notes, obviously safely, um, you know, trying as much as they can, if that's a safe thing to do that, you know, he's not going to find that. Um, but It you really know, sounds a little bit like, you know, when you t- listen to HR experts talking about um, if you're putting in a bullying complaint in, in mm. the workplace, mm. you're building the case, keeping the notes, having the yeah, evidence, the absolutely. witnesses, keeping yeah. the diary. It's, yeah. it's, and you don't have to do that over loads. Uh, just to be clear about that. It's not that they have to keep that. They have to endure this for months and months and end. Mm. You know, it could even be a, like a week. You know, it's like a, a week, you know, a week of uh, obviously the more you have, the better. But, you know, if they have a, like a week of journaling to kind of show and go to the Gardaí and say, look, this is what I'm experiencing. Mm. Okay. And it's up to the Gardaí to investigate. And I suppose just to come back to that, actually, the UK, my experience in the UK, because I did actually um, train um, police officers in the UK on coercive control. So it was like the the, the police and um, a domestic abuse mm. expert. And we co-trained um, the police there. And the reason that training was was rolled out was because there was findings happened after the coercive control offence was brought into the UK. Um, they did an investigate, you know, they did a report and they realised actually, do you know what? There's a big problem here. Um, that it's clear that police officers on the ground do not understand coercive control. Mm. They don't know how to investigate it. They don't know what they're looking for. And they said we really need to roll out training I suppose me and Katie were talking before we came in here about the importance of that of that training mm. it's like you, you know uh, legislation is as effective it's only a piece of paper unless people actually on the ground um, know how to implement it like the women will out there will know that they're experiencing it but you need to they need to go into the Gardaí mm. and the Gardaí need to go oh that's that sounds like coercive control mm. what do I, what are the questions I need to ask what is the case I need to put together to bring to the court the DPP you know the prosecution you know need to know what they need to do um, they need to do what how do they need to build a case and the barristers solicitors in the family law courts as well need to kind of be able to recognise what is coercive control identify it and support okay. women and empower women I'm going to pick up on just yeah. a couple of points in, in a few moments from various different issues raised there but I, I just wanted to ask you Katie just uh, just one or two other questions just before we leave the issue yes, of, of coercive control um, <laughs> is it specifically related to women? Um, no no I mean the domestic violence Covers um, both, yeah. Because yes, I know uh, we're talking about this absolutely. on International yes, Women's um, Day, yes, but of course, no, no, and and a situation of coercive control can happen where it is the woman, and in fact, there is a case in in the UK. I don't know the exact name of it, where it the person that was convicted of the coercive control was was a woman, and it was what she had subjected her partner to. So, so the domestic violence, the 2018 Act. It's gender neutral. It yeah. doesn't, okay. you know. Yeah, I just wanted uh, to be clear about that just for, for anyone listening. To yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, look, I, I, I hear everything that Gillian is saying. Uh, you know, one thing that I would think is that would really benefit is that there would be more structured training for Gardaí, um, that there would be structured training for barristers and for solicitors dealing with these cases. And I suppose the judiciary can tend to be a little bit resistant to having training but I think they would benefit from training as well because it's very complicated to understand um, Mm. and the more that we know the more that we understand the better we're able to deal Mm. with these cases and there's obviously societal attitudes towards a lot of this as well because what I might think is controlling somebody else listening today might say you know that's just you or you're sensitive or you're this or you're that or you're the other you know and I can well that's a really good point I think because actually you know often it's confused by love and even the person experiencing it you know they'll they'll kind of go oh no he loves me or or this is why he's doing it and that's what he'll Mm. be saying that's the key thing that's what the abuser will say I'm doing this because I love you or you're the only one that can help me you know and, and and like think about you know if if anyone in this room has you know ever fallen in love do you know what that feels like you're totally consumed by that person at the at the start um, and you know you might start you know, I'm not, you don't see your friends and family mm. as much because you're spending so much time with that person and you want to spend all that time with that person I remember when I first met my husband you know it was like you know instant and you know we spent so much time together I remember my, my friend and my brother kind of going what's wrong with you? Like, you're never like this about a man. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's kind of distinguishing what, what's, how then, right, would somebody distinguish, you know, falling yeah. in love with an abuser mm-hmm. who's grooming someone Right. And starting to say, you know, wanting that person to spend all their time with them, you know, and, and, you know, somebody can be in the relationship and trapped before they know it. And, you know, remember, they fall in love with that person. Any breakup is complicated. Right. But with domestic abuse, you know, leaving is very dangerous. Separation is very dangerous. And so I think people need to have that nuanced understanding about that and be not judgmental and be there with the woman. But always, you know, tell somebody that it's not their fault, that it's his behaviour and and to kind of recognise, you know, what is abusive behaviour? It's it's abusive when you feel fear, when you feel anxious, when you can't be yourself with that person and your behaviour and life has changed because of that person, you know, to keep the peace or to to keep that person happy all the time. There's lots more. 
we're going to pick up on in a few yeah. moments. We do just have to take a very short break. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more from our panel on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the second part of this morning's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we're discussing, to mark International Women's Day, we're discussing femicide and how to deal with instances of domestic abuse and domestic violence. Our panel still with us today, Gillian Dennehy, who's the Services Manager with Women's Aid, Katie Dawson, a barrister focusing on the family courts and also childcare law, and also Lisa Marmion, who's the Services Development Manager at Safe Ireland. Um, I want to come to you, Lisa, because there was a couple of points mentioned there by both Gillian and Katie just before the break. And very specifically talking about um, instances of safety orders and barring orders and when people take out or request or seek to have these orders put in place. What's your advice at Safe Ireland to people or how do you advise or advise or when do you advise people to go about getting these kind of orders? Um, well, within their services, there there's a range of supports, um, one-to-one support and sometimes court-based support that will help people navigate that very complex system. But we are very led by the, the women that we work with in what's right for them. Like when we understand coercive control, we understand the complexity of um, what they're living with every day. And then, you know, we understand why at times people can't move forward in, in that situation. Um, you know, we stop asking things like, why don't you just leave? Because we understand that it isn't within people's control often that the consequences are too great. Um, the experience of coercive control has been compared with a hostage situation, mm. you know, where, where people can be deprived of their freedom. I mean, it is essentially a crime of liberty where people's world gets much smaller and they're not able to do what it is that they want to do for themselves. Um you know, so when we understand that, mm. we, we, we can look at it through a different lens. You see, I think sometimes when you talk to some of the um, policing experts or even members of the Gardaí, sometimes they'll say, we've gone to that house 10 times at this stage and there's been this instant, incident and that incident and the other incident. And we keep saying we can't do anything else until you press charges or make a statement and, and seek the safety or the barring order and and for basically nearly putting the onus on uh, the on the woman in many cases to to press charges or to to say stop or to say enough, but that's probably where the coercive control element comes oh, into it absolutely. that they feel they can't do that. Andrea, absolutely. Um, the women and children living in this know their own you know they know their own situation. They know the limitations under which they live. They know the unsaid rules, they know the said rules, they know the unsaid and the, and the said cons- consequences because they are the experts of their own experience. So on the outside looking in, you know, we might see um, somebody out and about, oh, and they're always together. You know, for, for us, I think that would be, you know, that would give pause. Um, you know, they, they've maybe moved away from their family and friends. You know, sometimes people just think that that people are moved away. They don't necessarily understand that the consequences of them being in contact are horrendous. You know, so that deters people. Um, you know, when when we do talk about being in a hostage situation um, where you're deprived of decision-making around food, your freedom, um, it's like that in many ways, but in other ways it's personalised. So that's very different. And it, and it also, it's not episodic. Um, this is something that is constantly happening for women and children. You know, and if we do continue to look at this experience through the prism of episodes um, and f- the physical incident mm-hmm. model, we're going to miss the majority of the horror that women and children have been living with and are living with. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we do understand from the research that we will miss about 98% of the whole experience if we keep looking for physical abuse. And is that, mm-hmm. is that a failure to just, as we've talked about, and we've talked about it in, in great detail today, but is that a failure to just recognise the signs and the symptoms? Oh, absolutely, Andrea. I think that historically we've always looked for domestic violence with our eyes. So we look at the measurables, we look at the bruises, the broken bones, um, and we don't fully understand um, the the complexity of those interweaving experiences of isolation, intimidation and control and how powerful that is and how difficult that is to escape from. So, you know, there's there's uh, there's work to be done there. You know, there's work to be done at every level within our society, within our professions um, to really fully understand, because when we do understand this experience, 
you know, the shift then goes from why don't you just leave or va- blaming victims, which is, you know, that that does happen. Mm. Um, holding people accountable for somebody else's behaviour. And we shift on to accountability and where things need to change and how we can make it better and working together to do that. So it's it's about shifting culture. And the, I really do feel, we would feel that the offence of coercive control more accurately describes um, and captures mm. the experience of women and children. So the offence of coercive control then has the potential to, to shift culture, okay. to, you know, in Ireland. Can I ask you, Katie, just as a legal practitioner, do you think we have enough now in terms of the, there's a couple of things. There's a safety order, a, a barring order. Yes. Then there's restra- uh, restraining orders. Are no, they the same? we don't have restraining orders. We don't have restraining. Um, and that this is one of, there are two massive deficits that I see in terms of um domestic violence legislation at the moment. The first is we don't have a restraining order. And what I know and what I experience from cases that I have is that sometimes the the woman will get a safety order against her partner, her ex-partner, um, but he will then harass um, and threaten her family members and they have no recourse to the court. So if I, just, just to be clear, if I get a safety order today, what does that mean? It means that my partner can't... Yeah, it can't use or threaten to use violence, molest or put you in fear. Okay. And it also applies to any children that you so have. So it's effectively the threat. The barring order means then they can't come near within a certain distance or parameters of the exactly. property. Exactly. Is it the exactly. property or are you the individual? No, it is, it, is, it is the property. The barring order is physically the property. Now, it does, I mean, obviously, if you, if you have a barring order and you're assaulted outside of your family home, then the, the Gardaí... Clearly, yeah. ought to prosecution in respect of that. But I suppose the safety order and the barring order are different. We don't have restraining order. Um, so what's the difference there? What would well, what's the, the higher classification? Though? Well, the barring order because the barring order means that somebody who legally owns a house or co-owns a house can be asked to leave their own can be thrown out Far of their own you. family home um, and restrained from going there and restrained from having contact with the people. It, you know, it's clearly a higher threshold than a safety order. A safety order, I often hear judges say, is something that you shouldn't be doing anyway. So you shouldn't be <laughs> using violence, threatening to mm. use violence, molesting or, you know, or putting yeah. somebody in fear. These are things you ought not to be doing anyway. Um, the barring order is a higher threshold because it's basically saying the the level of fear, the level of violence, the level of threat is such that even though you legally, you are on the mortgage, you legally co-own this house, we are going to get an order that you ca- you have to, you're restrained from living in that house. And then if we were to bring it up a notch, what would the next level be? Um, Well, it's not about bringing it up a notch. I think it's about just having, I think, a more... I think we need to have... um, There are certain other orders that I think ought to be in place. I think there needs to be be specific legislation, in my view, in respect of stalking, um, to include online stalking. And this is a huge Mm. issue in terms of social media. That should be a specific offence in and of itself. Um, And that can deal with a situation where what you need to understand is that in terms of a safety order or a barring order, there is a requirement that this is an intimate relationship. In terms of stalking, you may never have been in an intimate relationship with this person, but they've become fixated on you. They've, they've, you know, and they've, and they've stalked you. So that needs to be a separate distinct offence with very serious consequences to it. I think the other thing is that in terms of, you know, I suppose I say a woman in this case, although I don't, you know, Mm. it's not gender specific. In terms of her family, in terms of the relationships that she has, I mean, particularly if you have a child with somebody, you have to try and navigate a situation where access has to take place. There's drop off, there's collection and you're afraid of them. So you're your father is doing the drop off or the collection and they're getting threatened. There needs to be a effectively a restraining order there which allows for a court to listen to somebody, to take the evidence and say, listen, I'm satisfied that you are being threatened, you are being harassed, you are being, you, you are in fear. Um, and even though you're not in an intimate relationship with this person, okay. you're entitled to, to have so this you, restraining yeah, you order. you believe there's, there's, there's a void there in, in the legislation. Would you agree with that, Gillian Dennehy? Um, I would, yes, because um, I've actually, you know, come from another jurisdiction um, and where, you know, 
what they have, and it's not called safety orders, but non-molestation orders, which has a similar effect. Um, however, they do have, you know, you can pre- prevent indirect um, communication and that's what Katie's on about and that is a, a serious problem for women so indirect communication what it would mean is that a woman can go get a safety order and it would you know cover her her children for you know him not to communicate and by the way the new legislation includes electronic communication mm, it didn't mm, include yeah. that before so that and that was a real gap you know because yeah. texting whatever emails things like that but also would it prevent um, that abuser from contacting her family because mm. that's indirect communication or also him getting his like for example cousin to call her up or his friend to call her up. That's also indirect communication. So any ways he's using, mm. any means of communication he's using to try and get at her. Mm. So that would, you know, to prevent all that. At the moment, that's a gap um, in the legislation. So it's unfortunate they didn't include that. We did ask for that, but it wasn't included. And I also agree with the stalking legislation. Again, in the, another okay. jurisdiction in the UK, there is stalking um, legislation. And, and, and that was really campaigned for over there. And it was really important. I, I do want to come to a couple of other areas today as well. Mm. Um, the recent Claire Byrne a programme on, on RT television highlighted the uh, the case of Clode, uh, Clode Hall in County Cavan who was killed by her husband Alan um, along with their, their three young children um, th- there's been obviously a, a lot of discussion about this case in, in recent weeks and there's now um, a call by the family by Clode's mother and sister for a number of different issues to be addressed one of which is a special investigation unit for uh, familicide and family annihilation to be set up um, for information gathered in the course of investigations to be shared as soon as practicable basically with the next of kin and also for um, a review by the Justice Minister of the, the Succession Act. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask you all your views on that? Just for, starting with yourself first of all uh, Lisa Marmion from Safe Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrea well firstly you know I, I would like to say to Jacqueline and, and Mary that I am I am so respectful and have such admiration for what they've done and I'm so sorry for their horrendous loss of, of Claude and Niall and Liam and Ryan um, they have made possible public and private conversations that haven't been happening mm-hmm. um, and that is is hopefully the beginning of change in this country um, certainly in relation to succession I mean that's a very welcome um, uh, amendment when it when it moves through. So the just even as it stands, though the thoughts that somebody can take somebody's life and essentially profit from that. I mean that's something that certainly needs to be addressed. Or even the, the extended family, I suppose, in some cases. Absolutely. And can I bring you into Gillian Dennehy on, on, on I suppose, just those kind of three points that mm. just very, I'm mm. not specifically talking about the whole case, but just mm. in general mm. terms, the calls that they're looking for. Yeah. Um, what's your view on that? Well, you know, also at Women's Aid, we've been calling for domestic homicide reviews for a long time. And that's, you know, from our femicide watch because... Um, you know what exactly what is needed is is you know I've worked actually on domestic homicide reviews I've worked on on them in the UK um, and they're you know they provide a full picture a whole picture of of what happened as much as possible you know and what domestic homicide reviews can do is um, first of all you know uh, an old colleague of mine Frank Mullane who works for um, advocacy after fatal domestic abuse and that works with bereaved families and he was bereaved himself by domestic homicide and what he would say is that you know family needs to be integral to it okay mm-hmm. so you'd have for example the whole family integral to this review okay so there'll be interviews with them there'll be interviews with friends um, and family there'll be interviews with this you know who Whoever else is in the community and that also can include like employers um, it can include the school um, but what is really important about domestic harm is that it needs to be on a statutory um, basis okay mm. it needs to have teeth okay so you need to have it on legislation it's like okay so for example the Clodagh Hall uh, murder has happened of her and her three children there needs to be okay um, you know the power in government to say we need to do a review of this okay and ye are the agencies that need to be around that table and so you need statutory agencies and voluntary agencies so for example statutory agencies that definitely need to be around that table will be for example health um, you know, you need to have GPs, you need to have hospitals around the table, you need to have schools, education around the mm-hmm. table, you need to have housing around the table, I mean, you need to have social services around the table, you need to have the Gardaí around the table. And they because perform- the Gardaí would, yeah. and not again specifically focusing on, on, on the whole case, but we're just talking about the, the, these kind of cases, yeah. that th- th- there is yeah. obviously a Garda investigation that's carried out, a criminal investigation. Yeah, of course, and that's, that's completely separate, and, that, mm-hmm. and that's really, really important. You can have an ongoing criminal investigation, but this review can be happening um, a parallel to that. Okay. And it's it's parallel and it's different. Why a review is different is because it's not a blame game. 
Um, it's not about a disciplinary procedure, although agencies can go off and do that separately. It's about specifically learning lessons. It's about pushing, um, every, you know, the, and you need an ind- what's really important about these reviews, it needs to be independent. You need an independent author and chair. Someone who can kind of say, be around the table, bring these agencies together and say, okay, what lessons can everyone learn? Let's not be defensive. Let's not put blame on anyone. But what can we learn? What can we go back and go back to our agencies and go, well, what are, are our policies and procedures good enough? What contact did we have with the victim and their children and the abuser? All of them. And what can we do better okay. when someone else comes through our doors? We- um, and so that you're learning lessons and that you have recommendations that really have power and power to make change in our communities to make them safer. And that's what it's all about. Okay. Making we- them safer. We are going to continue on with this, Katie, because I want to yeah. get your, your perspective on this as, as a legal expert um, in a few moments. We do just have to take a very short break. So just do stay with us. We'll be back with more from our panel in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. It's International Women's Day. Um, it's the first in our series of our podcast, first episodes of Between the Lines this Friday morning. And we're discussing femicide and how to deal with instances of domestic abuse. Our panel that's still with us, Gillian Dennehy, Services Manager with Women's Aid, Elisa Marmion, Services Development Manager at Safe Ireland, and also Barrister uh, Katie Dawson. Katie, I want to come to you just on those points mentioned there before the break. We were talking specifically about um, the, the whole families calls for various different measures to be, to be introduced following uh, their, their own uh, case tragic case in County Cavan. One of the, the areas they're calling for is for the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris to set up a special investigation unit for uh, familicide and family annihilation. Just as a legal expert, what's your view on that? Well, I mean, I suppose I would, would welcome that. I mean, I think it's important um, for for everybody that's dealing with this and, and everybody's dealing with it from a different perspective so Gillian and, and Lisa will be dealing with it from a different perspective to what I'm dealing with it you can, you're not going to go wrong by reviewing mm. crimes that have happened by finding out more about what's going on by finding out where there are deficits in the system we're finding out where there might have been things between different statutory bodies where things went you know things fell under the crack and so I, I mean I see this in childcare all the time where you have interdisciplinary, you know, reviews and, and, and processes. So I think on a statutory basis, that would definitely be something that would be welcome. I also agree that um, uh, there should be a review of the Succession Act in terms of whether uh, somebody who has um, or somebody somebody who has murdered their partner or their children, uh, whether their family should be able to, you know... To, to, to inherit mm. from that. Um, and I think there is a discussion to be had about how you would implement that, how you would have a statutory provision to deal with it. But I think it's definitely um, a useful discussion because I think if you were to ask people in society generally whether they think it's a situation where if you murder your partner... Um, and then you kill yourself, your family should be able to 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 profit and benefit from that and inherit from that. I think people would mm. fundamentally say, I have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. And it may be that you have to go to court and there's an argument, but I, I think it definitely would be okay. useful for there to be that measure can, in place. Can I just ask you fi- just finally on this issue, Katie, um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the whole case, just to, to say at the outset, but just it, when we talk about looking at bringing other people in state agencies around tables, there is a fear, and I've heard it talked about, you know, a previous that people are perhaps looking for an agency to blame that they're, you were responsible you missed something you didn't pick up on something is is that the case? No and I mean I, I think that's not the way to have that conversation um, I think it can be very difficult to know what's going on in a private house at times and, and so I don't think we approach this from a situation of saying you know if the child and family agency didn't pick up on something if the school didn't pick up on something we're going to start you know Going after mm. them and taking disciplinary. Yeah, I approach. just wondered was I, that the hesitation? I, I no, I, I think, I think it, what is more important is that I think it needs to be a societal change. And I suppose I will say this: there needs to be a change in terms of the media as well, in terms of how femicides are reported, mm-hmm. how domestic violence is reported. I think if you ask um, average people, they are really frustrated with a situation where some uh, a, a femicide happens where children are killed and we have a conversation about how he was a great guy down mm-hmm. at the local GAA club or how he was a you know he was at church every week mm-hmm. and how he, he was a, he was a lovely man I, it, it, the the conversation can't be about you know how we explain what he did and how we minimize what he did so i, I think media plays a part and a conversation like this 
is really useful. Mm. You know, it, it's really important and it's really important that you're doing this. So, but there does need to be, if we're going to deal with this on a societal level, then part of that is the media not, part of that is how the media report on cases like this. I suppose people I, I know from even looking at some of the, the online reaction to, to instances like this, people look for, well, what went wrong? What happened? Mm-hmm. Something must have happened. And I know that was something, Lisa, you mentioned a little bit earlier, that oftentimes when people come into you, it's because there's been, you know, a flick of the switch. There's been one specific thing that happened. And that's why people come sometimes to seek help. And I suppose there is that kind of um, curiosity that people have about who somebody is or what, what they were. Well, just what's your view on that, Gillian? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, of course, you know, there is curiosity out there. There is, you know, uh, uh, I suppose there's a pu- often a public feeling of like, you know, want to hold somebody to account. And I think at the end of the day, the pe- person we need to hold to account is the abuser. Mm-hmm. Right. And we must not mm-hmm. forget that there's yeah. somebody who's made a choice about what to, th- to end um, to murder people and to end their lives. OK. And remember, domestic homicide is it, it, it's at the final act of control. Yeah. So it's it's that person saying, you know, that the woman, the children are his possessions. Um, and I think Jacqueline was very articulate in, in writing about that, um, that, you know, that's how Alan Hoff felt, that he felt that they were her, his possessions. He could dispose of them. And we as a society need to kind of ask that. Well, how is it that our society and we talk about Irish society, but societies around the world, mm. is it that men are, feel they, they are entitled, that they are entitled um, to abuse women, to rape women, to harass women, to treat them as their objects and objects that they can dispose of? Because that's what they do. And that's the final act okay. of control and that's what we have to remember and I guess that's the person who needs to be held account but as a society we can all learn well, well how do we hold um, abusers to account and how can we make victims safer yeah. in their own community and, just as, as, and, and pick those signs yeah. up but we can't learn about that unless we review it um, and review it as okay. a community and not be defensive. Yeah. Look, it's, you know? it's, it's, there's, there's, there's loads to discuss. And yeah. as I mentioned, we aren't talking about any one specific case here. We're, mm. we're talking just in, in general terms. But just Gillian used the, the phrase of the kind of the, the red flags a few moments ago. I suppose just in a final point in wrapping up today, um, I think it's very important. We will come to the advice for people, contact details for people listening if they do want to seek help. But just the warning signs to look out for, um, Lisa, your advice to people who perhaps think they have a friend, a sister, a cousin, a work colleague who's in a situation that, oh, do you know what? I think that might fall under the coercive control. He's not, you know, hitting her or she's not hitting him, but there is something going on there behind closed doors. Um, what, What should people be looking out for? Well, essentially when people are withdrawn from that space where they're not as available or as reachable at times, I mean, that can sometimes be a warning sign that, that they are being controlled. Um, again, if they're on, if they're unaccompanied um, and that's unusual, I mean, it's something that might, there are a number of different flags, but what we certainly would be encouraging would be to to let the person know that you are concerned for them, but without giving ultimatums or or um, telling them mm. what to do, um, letting them know that unconditionally that you're there. If you can at all, it, encourage them to make contact with services um, or also to, to avail of some of the online resources that are out there that can help them. Um, you know, really help them come to okay. terms of what what they're experiencing. Gillian, from mm. the women's aid perspective, what's mm. your kind of red flag mm-hmm. barriers for people or the things people should be looking out for? Mm-hmm. Well, we do have a two. I just want to mention we do have a two into you um, website. So that's two into you. Uh, .ie, um, and we do have t- like ten warning signs, and we we particularly brought that. Um, uh, have that campaign to, to target um, young women um, and to make them aware about dating abuse and also about th- that they now can apply for protection and safety orders as well. Um, and I suppose what I would say to, to, to people in relationships is how is it, how do you feel? You know, do you feel trapped? Do you feel in fear? Do you feel anxious of this person? How is it making you feel? Um, and then, you know, if, if you're feeling any of these things, you know, go talk to somebody, you know, talk to a specialist, um, you know, take things at your own time. Because separation is a dangerous time. We really want to flag that. I want to flag that as well to your friends, family, who can be very well intentioned mm. and, and do have a lot of information, by the way. Um, and I you know, echo everything Lisa said that, you know, you're there, you're listening, you're non judgmental, you're not telling somebody what to do. And you're saying, look, there's specialist um, services out there. You know, we have a national free phone 24 hour helpline. Um, 
that I'm sure you'll, you'll mention that on the show. Um, and you know that yeah, that friends, both friends, family, and um, survivors can use and talk to somebody. Um, and as Lisa said, it's it's you know it's it's how, how you're feeling, but also you know the, the abuser's behaviors. You know, are is there are the rules always changing? No matter what you do, no matter what you're doing, trying to keep the p- peace, um, is that changing? Is he controlling? How, you know you know, who you're with, mm. who you talk to, what you do. Do you feel you're changing as a person? Do the people around you feel you've changed as a person? Okay. You know? Just on the final point, Katie, we'll give the last word to you today, but just the kind of the, as somebody that's looking at it from, I, I, I understand obviously a very different perspective, but just the kind of the key things for you that you notice. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I don't have the expertise that Gillian and Lisa have. I mean, I, I, I'm just a lawyer, but um, <laughs> no, I don't mean it like that. But I just, I mean, I, I don't profess to have any particular expertise in terms of domestic violence in the way that Women's Aid and Safe Ireland would have. Uh, but yes, I mean, you know, by the time they get to me, there is often a very long trail and a very long history. And I think it's understated as to how difficult it can be for somebody to get to the point where they walk in the door of a court Mm. and look for a safety order and look for a barring order. Mm. So in terms of red flags... I don't necessarily deal with that. I'm yeah. at the end of the road. I suppose when they're coming to you, it can often, I hate to say, be too late, but you're, you're, you're at the end of where they've endured, I suppose, that they've perhaps gone through the services of Safe yeah. Ireland. And I think just, just in terms of the court process, I think it can't be understated how difficult that can be for people. And I think it's very welcome that there are now provisions to allow for evidence by video link. But we still have court facilities whereby somebody comes to look for a safety order or a barring order and finds themselves confronted by the person who's their perpetrator. Mm. And I mean, I know, for example, there is a support service that Women's Aid offer in terms of of, of being a support person. Mm. And the new act allows for you to bring a support person into court. So all of those things, things are very welcome. But I think it can't be understated how difficult it is for somebody to find themselves in a situation where they have to come to court and look for an order. It's very difficult. It's been a really informative discussion today. Um, I know it's probably been a hard listen for some people so I do want to say if you're listening today and you'd like to make contact with any of the services or to seek advice or help or whatever the case is uh, the Women's Aid number is 1800 341 that's 1800 341 uh, Women's Aid 24 Hour their national um, he- that's their helpline number and uh, you can also if you have the do you have the Safe Ireland Yes, um, well, you'll be able to locate the, your local services on www.safeireland.ie. So that will give you the contact for, for details the Safe for all the services organisation across as the well. country. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to our panel, Services Manager with Women's Aid, Gillian Dennehy, a barrister focusing in the family courts and childcare law, Katie Dawson, and also Lisa Marmion, Services Development Manager at Safe Ireland. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website at News talk.com or search for news talks between the lines in iTunes or any other podcast player. My thanks to the production team Elaine Power and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with breakfast briefing on Monday morning from 6 and with Between the Lines for next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a great day. Between the Lines on News Talk.